0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: Good morning and welcome to The Morning Briefing for Thursday, July 19th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we're going to speak to Joe Schinelli, Executive Director of AMBET. He's going to be calling in from Tennessee, where they just had their first heel Summit, I guess you could call it, or a heel Roundtable. Basically, they brought in people from around the area to talk about the issues that they're dealing with when it comes to the VA, when it comes to health, when it comes to mental health. We're going to talk to Joe about how that went and so much more. Then we're also going to talk to JJ Montanaro from USAA. He's a financial planner and he's going to tell us about a recent survey that came out and showed that a huge percentage of the public would have severe financial difficulties if the primary earner were to pass away. It's an even bigger concern for the veteran community, it turns out. And why, you ask, would they be in such financial difficulty? Well, because they don't have life insurance or enough life insurance, whatever the case may be. We'll talk to JJ about that coming up in just a little bit. But before we get to any of that, it's time to welcome Super Producer Jake into the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm good. Are you a little sore? anything Uh, like that surprisingly
2: not i'm really not after because for those that were not listening yesterday yesterday i took a uh we did a video of me taking the army's new physical fitness test Mm. and it was it was very interesting there let's see i think five or six events there's uh let's see Why what did i do i did there's the deadlift there's the uh hands-off push-ups there's an overhead toss uh, sprints, the leg tuck, and the two-mile run. And I did all of them except the two-mile run because we all know how that would have ended.
1: Yeah, with you going to the hospital most likely. Pretty so, much, yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you think it compared to the physical fitness test, the PRT, the PFT, whatever you want to call it, uh, that you used to take when you were in the Army for 13 years?
2: I think it's a lot better. Like, Because I, I get the feeling that now I could still pass at least the push-ups and sit-ups of the old PT test. Yeah, Because... I just my body has that muscle memory because right. then that's all we trained for was when we do PT in the morning, we train for the PT test that yep. is push ups and sit ups in a two mile run. With this, you really have to be more varied in your workouts yep. because it works different muscle groups. It's a more extensive test and more it more tests your aerobic endurance. Yeah. Because you have to do all these things in a row. And I really think that It's going to make a better army because I know people have been talking online about, how oh, this new test is going to be for wusses and it's gender neutral grading and all that. But I challenge these people to actually go out and take the test. Right. We don't have grading standards right now, but go out and try it and you'll see that it is a good workout.
1: The question I have is, so you just said all but one of the events you were able to complete uh, the one that you weren't able to complete was, uh, I believe, hanging from a bar and then pulling your knees yes, up to touch your elbows. Yes, the leg tuck,
2: where you're supposed to, you hang from a bar with your arm with your arms, uh, sort of like you're facing the bar. Right. You pull up to where your arms are parallel and touch your knees or your thighs to your elbow. I couldn't even do one.
1: Oh, and, that, and that's like a repetitive exercise. You're supposed to do as many as you can. So it's yes. kind of like a pull up, but you're pulling up your lower body to your yes. upper body. Essentially, it's
2: supposed to be a much better. A, a core exercise and sit-ups. Plus, it doesn't hurt your back.
1: Right, with, an, with a with a double grip. So you're not, not like a pull-up where your you're both hands are facing out or both hands are facing in. One is facing out, one is facing in, and you're kind of uh, parallel to the bar. Exactly, yes, of that's a better way of describing it. it. Um, here's what I wonder about that test. So let's say you're in the Army and you're unable to do that exercise. You do great on all the other ones with – five or six exercises or whatever it is now, instead of the normal three that everybody was used to, what happens? Do you fail?
2: I think you would be a no-go.
1: Wow. Wow. So more opportunities for failure is one thing that it brings, which will be interesting to see how they, how they work that out. Because I'll tell you, one thing that the uh, military in general can't afford right now is losing more people. They're kind of hurting for numbers right now.
2: Right, but I I generally think this is going to make a more well-rounded soldier. I think that this is the kind of test that the army has needed because as I said before, when doing PT, you tra- cuz you train for the test. Right. Whereas this is more training for actual combat tactics and Things you would do, like the sled drag, having to drag someone's body out, or yep. carrying ammo cans or something like that. The, the things that you are going to actually do
1: if you're forward deployed. Pulling the body along, though, what's the weight that they put on that sled? That's 90 pounds. Who's 90 pounds in there? In their, in their full battle rattle? Who's weighing 90 pounds? The, the armor itself, you're talking like 40 pounds, 35 pounds.
2: Yeah, you're right. It, it, I mean, it's not perfect, I don't think. should be
1: about 200 pounds that you're pulling. You know, let's go for the average weight of a soldier with their body armor and everything on. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, that's the, w- the real situation.
2: The way it works is with the sprint drag carry, it was more extensive than I thought it was going to be because you have 25-meter track. You sprint down and back, you grab the sled, drag down and drag back, mm-hmm. sprint and then you do a side step down and back, okay. then you carry the the two kettlebells or dumbbells, 40 pounds each, down and back, and then one more sprint down and back.
1: Oh, okay. So, so it's, a, it's a little bit more involved. I thought it would be just pulling the body down there. But still, the fact remains, you could have to do things similar to that and still have to pull a 200-pound. And that's just saying on average, let's say, with the, with the body armor, because... Body armor is like, what is it, like 30 pounds total, something like that? 45
2: pounds. Your Kevlar,
1: yeah, so it's somewhere around that. So let's say the average weight of a soldier is going to be somewhere around like 170 pounds-ish. It's probably a little bit higher than that even, but let's just say for argument's sake, 170 pounds plus 30 to 40 pounds of armor and whatever else they've got on them, you're talking 200 plus pounds. So the 90-pound dummy that you're pulling along doesn't seem to be the, the best or most ideal option to me. You know the thing that I think they need to fix before they fix anything else, and What's that? I, maybe they have already. I don't know, but they didn't for the thirteen years that I was in. That was the uh, body fat percentage measurement, the rope and choke, where they would measure your waist and yeah, measure your and neck. It is not an accurate way of measuring your body. Oh, fat it's percentage.
2: not. I mean, my entire. I mean, the first seven years of my career, when I was in the best shape of my life, I weighed one seventy-five. According to body mass index, I was ten pounds overweight.
1: Which is ridiculous. That measurement thing has to do with your physiology more than anything else, and it does not. I mean, it can, uh, it can indicate body fat percentage, but there were guys. We had a guy who had something like three point five percent body fat. He had been measured the full way, where they put you in a water tank and they do it with displacement and everything. He had like three point five percent. He was a bodybuilder. Based on the Navy regulations, he was above body fat percentage because they would measure him and his neck. He didn't have a thick neck. He had a thick body, but he had a smaller neck. That measurement basically comes, they measure your waist, they measure your neck, and then they subtract the measurement of the neck from the waist. And if the number's too high, well, that's your body fat percentage. No. No, it's absolutely not. There were also obese people who had giant thick necks who, because of that measurement, they were fine it was it was so ridiculous and if they haven't fixed that yet that's something I think they need to look at as well, and that's a very simple fix. Where you can use calipers, you don't have to get the uh, the water displacement tanks. I understand the cost of that would be a problem, but the caliper thing is one way of measuring it with a tool instead of a mathematical equation. That's nonsense and may or may not give you a general idea of what someone's body fat percentage is. So it's I think it is good that they're finally working to change the PRTs in the Navy because in the military, I should say not in the Navy yet, but they're not they're not relevant to the job that you do for most people in the navy running a mile and a half okay when are you going to run a mile and a half that's a better question would be short sprints and things like that doing a number of sprints almost like what you were doing sprints with weight weighted sprints that would be one way to do it Of course, push ups. All right. I got no problem with push ups. The exercise I have the most problem with that the Navy did for the entire time I was in and is still doing them the curl ups, as they call them, or as normal people know them, sit ups, which are proven to be horrible for your back and spine. Yep. No doctor will tell you, like, yeah, go do a bunch of sit ups. Nope. Crunches, maybe sit ups. They're just bad for you. And how many people do we have, like me, leaving the military after 10 plus years with back issues? That's part of it, that you have to do sit-ups, you know, three times a week, a dangerous exercise that is, doesn't do anything. It doesn't really uh, strengthen your core, not nearly as well as numerous other exercises that are better indic- indicator, I was going to say better indicative, better indicator of Your physical fitness So it's one of those things Like again Glad to see that They're making some changes But man Do they need to do Some really simple things Like in the Navy Change the sit-ups To something else A plank for four minutes Or something like that Do something That's really indicative Of someone's core strength And that won't screw up Their back And cause them uh, Pain in the future Because That's exactly what They're doing And then again A mile and a half run For the Navy Never really made sense For me Because I mean If you're on a ship we don't got any mile-and-a-half-long ships. You know, it's it's just not going to happen. Sprints, weighted sprints, something like that would make more sense to me. Um, but, you know, I, I, then again, they're testing your aerobic performance and all that stuff. So I don't know about the run, but I definitely know that these sit-ups slash curl-ups need to go the way of the dodo. They shouldn't be doing those anymore. And they know they shouldn't be doing them. They've been talking about it for years, yet there it is on your PRT list. Also think they need to change uh, the grading system, which is what the Army's doing with this. It's going to be gender neutral. Everybody's required to do the same score is essentially what we're hearing about it, right? Right. That's what should be. The fact that you are older, younger, male, female. The fact that you're, let's say, a uh, the, the PRT requirements are different for a 35-year-old uh, military member and a 21-year-old military member. Do not those, same, those two people have to do the same job? If they're out and someone gets... Someone gets shot, someone gets injured, are they not required to be able to pull that person off? So then why are you holding the 21-year-old to a higher physical standard than the 35-year-old? Why not find a baseline that you need? And that seems to be what the Army's doing, and uh, bravo Zulu to them if that's what they're doing. Um, There's, of course, also the conversation on this PFT change. There's a lot of people who think that uh, it's being watered down to accommodate for the female soldier i don't know i mean we're gonna to have to see what happens with it yeah, but I, I, if the I, standards are truly equal and they are supposed to be difficult for uh, a male to accomplish then they're probably going to be more difficult for females to accomplish just based on you know physiology again
2: you're right and i would say the test itself i would disagree with that but it comes down to the scoring system it matters what the scores are going to be because like i said for the uh, for the deadlift The minimum weight is anywhere, the weight can be anywhere from 120 to 420 for the deadlift. So, even if you're, you know, an 18 year old female and you only weigh, you know, 130 something pounds, 140 pounds, there's a
1: lot of them that weigh a lot less than that. There's there's some that actually, when we talk about the body being pulled that weighs 90 pounds, I served with some females in the Navy who weighed well under 100 pounds. I mean, there are. So it's, it's going to be interesting. If you are a, as you said, if you're a smaller female, a petite female who weighs 105 pounds, that 120-pound deadlift ain't going to be easy for you. You're going to have to work on it. Whereas, I mean, if you're, a, it's, it's there's just differences. There are physical differences between males and females. I'm all for holding everybody to the same standard. Again, whether you're female, male, older, younger, you're required to do the same things. Therefore, the physical uh, the physical challenges that you should be able to test for should be the same. I don't know if people are going to like what happens if that is the case because yep. you're going to see a larger percentage of females, in my opinion, and this is just a common sense, basic math, you're going to see more females unable to accomplish the same goals of their male counterparts. And that's the
2: important question is are there going to be consequences? Are Because they're, they're talking about allowing females in combat roles. Are they going to say to that 125-pound female, who wants to be infantry, I'm sorry you can't because you can't meet the standard. And that's mm. the question, is that if they don't, if they start having no consequences for these for not being able to accomplish these tasks, that's when the problem comes in.
1: I've told the story before of when I was doing my uh, IA training prior to Afghanistan. I was at Fort Meade. Basically, they were training us uh, sailors how to be soldiers is what they were trying to do over like a month and a half or however long we were there. And when we were doing uh, basically a patrol exercise through one of the towns that they set up and the instructor comes out like, all right, you're hit. You pull it down. And one of the females complained, why am I not being used to pull anybody off to the side of the road? I might have to do that, too. And he's like, all right, good point. Yeah, you do. I was the dummy. I was the one that was that went down. And when she tried to pull me, she grabbed that handle on the back of my, uh, my body armor to pull. And all that happened is the armor came up and choked me. And I moved, I don't know, two feet, something like that. I mean, she could not move me. And that's the thing. When you talk about wanting females to be in combat roles, there are those who will absolutely be able to hack it. Oh, absolutely. There are also a lot of them that will not be able to hack it. And again, it's physiological differences. I, I can I can think of a young sailor that I was on the USS Saipan with. She was fresh into the Navy. She was a personnel specialist who did paperwork and stuff like that and couldn't weigh more than 85 pounds. What is she going to be able to do in a combat situation? I mean... People think like, well, everyone can shoot a gun. Yes, but there's a lot more to it than that. What if one of those people shooting the gun gets hit? What if that person outweighs the other person by, you know, double their weight or more than that? What do you do in that situation?
2: Yeah, I had a similar. In my first unit, we had this female soldier that we called her boots because she was so small. They had to custom order boots for her Mm -hmm. because she was under five foot. She couldn't have weighed more than 90 pounds. And... By the same token, on the opposite side of that, my gunner at the time was like a bodybuilder. He weighed easily 250 pounds. Yeah, and with body armor, that goes up to like 285. Right. What if they were on a patrol together? Yeah. There's
1: no way she could have pulled him to safety, and so and some people make the argument, yeah, well, there's some males who couldn't either. Okay, but they you know shouldn't what? be in combat either. The percentage, though, I mean, when you're talking about the percentage of those who can, I can move 285 pounds. It's not going to be easy, but I can move 285 pounds there are people who it's going to be impossible for, literally impossible for. You're talking someone in in body armor, let's say. You're talking about a 250-pound guy that you were talking about. Let's go lower than that. I was like 185 when I was in Afghanistan. I'm quite higher above that now. But add on that 40 pounds of gear that I was carrying around with me, you're now talking about 225, 230 pounds. That 90-pound, 100-pound person it's going to be very difficult for them to be able to move that individual, and that's an important thing on the battlefield to be able to get people out of harm's way who are injured and can't do it themselves. And I think back again to that same sailor on the sidepam with me, uh, the personnel specialist. Or she may have been a dispersing clerk. Uh, she anyway, she worked in personnel in, in one way or another. She was in the repair locker that I was part of, the, and a repair locker for those that don't know, Navy ships. That's when there's an explosion or a fire or something like that. You go to your repair locker, and it's essentially a fire department. There's, I think there were like nine of them or something like that along the USS Saipan. So nine firefighting teams that would then be dispatched in order based on who was closest, who was able to get there and all that stuff. In that gear locker, she was, a repair locker, I should say, she was unable to do anything. Like, she, all she did was handed out helmets to people as they were getting geared up in their firefighting equipment. They tried putting um, uh, an OBA, the oxygen, or sorry, SCBA, because we had switched to those already. It's a scuba tank, essentially, but without the underwater part. It's not watertight. It weighed... I don't know, 30 pounds, something like that. They tried putting that on her. She literally collapsed under its weight. She fell backwards immediately as they put it on. She was incapable of doing anything like that. Now, this is an extreme example. This is someone who, again, 90 pounds maybe. She may have been way under that. She was very slight. Um she had an excellent score on the PRT as well. Like she was, she met all the standards, but was incapable of doing the job. And I totally understand that there are going to be males who fall into that category too, but there are going to be fewer of them. And I have no problem with those who don't qualify being pulled out, but I do think that there are going to be some people who are going to be upset. If you have a larger number of female soldiers being, Failed on this well,
2: test. Those are the same people that think there are no biological differences between the sexes, and they're idiots. Yeah, but it's that would be, ex-
1: that would be, proof that there are physiological differences. I mean, there no, they'll are, say
2: the tests are sexist.
1: Yeah, well, there are muscle mass differences. There are body structure, bone structure differences. There are things that just they make a difference. It's it's a fact. It's it's nature. It's what it is. It's science. There are people who will argue. Uh, That it's not. And those people, in my opinion, are crazy people. They're out of their minds. But this will be interesting. I could see it being a flashpoint in that discussion. But I can also see it it giving the army and it giving those females in the army who do pass the test the opportunity to say, listen, this is how it should be. It should be equal. That's what we were. uh, That's what that's what we're all about. Equality. And that's. Something that has been a a thorn in the paw of the military for many, many years. These separate but equal physical fitness test scores where, uh, you know, females, uh, by the time I left the military and I was, how old was I, 31, I think, when I left the Navy? Yeah, 31. My female counterparts in the same age bracket i had to do like i don't know 50 something push-ups minimum to to pass the test and not be on fat boy pt it was like 55 60 something like that for the females in my same age bracket it was like 18 20 yeah in like the
2: army according to the old standards a 18 f- year old female has to do 14 push-ups
1: 14 that's insane and Again, these are the standards that they set. There are people who greatly exceed those standards, and there are people who work at it hard and figure out uh, ways around it and ways how to do it and more power to them, but that's the key. I think when the Army puts this in, they have to stick to that. They cannot lower the standards to accommodate for the weaker individuals. They cannot raise the standard too high to you know, go to where everybody's failing it. They have to find the right point where it's effective for combat because that's the only thing that matters in the United States Army, effective for combat because that is the Army's role. Mission comes first, no matter what. Your feelings come a distant third. Feelings are important when it comes to some things, though, like the MRE, Jake. <laughs> we've got a poll up on connectingvets.com and by the way intercom's connectingvets.com is connecting vets every day and you should be checking it out't you know how many well, times a day do you think Jake
2: uh at least a couple dozen
1: yeah like 24 minimum yeah. uh, I love you, how you just slide that tagline in there nice and slick if you can't then follow us on social media where we are at connecting vets on Facebook Twitter Instagram and YouTube and on the website we've got a poll up there the worst MRE. Here's why this poll bugs me, Jake, and I think might bug you, although you got out more recently than I did. I got out seven years ago. So I looked down the list of the worst MRE, and I'm ready to click on this poll. Beef Franks. The five (laughs) fingers of death, baby. I was ready to click on Beef Franks. Guess what? Apparently, they don't have that anymore. They fed us these, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like a Slim Jim if you took the flavor out of it and made it a little bit bigger and more hot dog shaped on the end. It was awesome awful. It was awful. It would gum up the works for a good month and a half if you <laughs> ate one of them. It was bad. So I looked down the list and they're they're listing these what's the absolute worst MRE they all look delicious compared to the crap they were giving us. <laughs> First memories I had was when I uh, deployed with the Marines from Iceland back in like 1999, I think it was. And if you got beef franks, you would literally trade your main course of beef franks to some iron stomached lunatic out there for anything like you would trade all of your stuff for their main course. You would give away your gum, your Tabasco sauce. That was a big one. That was the way that you could kind of make the food a little bit more palatable, even when it was totally. Yeah, like
2: now it tastes like crap with Tabasco and pepper. Yeah, now in it.
1: you would just dump the whole little bottle of Tabasco on and be like, now it just tastes like Tabasco, thick, meaty Tabasco. Um Looking down the list, here we go. Tell me if any of the, any of these sound too bad. Shredded barbecue beef with black beans, jalapeno cheese spread and tortillas. That actually sounds pretty good. Yeah, I would order that at a restaurant. I know, right? Spaghetti with beef and sauce, toaster pastry, and peanut butter. Peanut butter makes any MRE great. Yeah, peanut butter is good. You can put it on anything. Put it on the spaghetti if you want. Spaghetti yeah. and peanut butter. That works. Uh chicken chunks, cheddar cheese bread and tortillas. That's the only one that kind of looks like it belongs in the uh the old school MRE. Yeah, anything
2: with ate. the word chunk in it.
1: Yeah, chicken chunks, or they'd be like something a la king, which just meant whatever we got left over, and then put yeah. some sauce on it. Uh, brisket with au gratin, potatoes, cookies, and peanut butter. Holy crap, that sounds delicious. Brisket, veggie crumbles with pasta. Okay, right there you're like, that kind of sounds like an old school one. Nah, eh, just wait. In taco style sauce with fruits and chunky peanut butter. So they give you a chunky peanut butter on top of it. Rib-shaped barbecue pork patty with Santa Fe style rice and beans. All right, MRE makers, you just ripped off the McRib and we know.
2: Yeah, it. that one is actually really good. That one it for is arib a McRib. Long. It's been around for it a while. It comes long time. with two uh two wheat snack breads, so yeah. it is uh the McRib.
1: It, it it is what it is. Chili with beans, cornbread, and cheddar cheese spread. That's another one that's been around for a while. So they've kept like two or three of the, the favorites that people liked. Beef taco. Oh. With wet pack fruits, I don't know what that is, cheddar cheese spread, and tortillas. And then finally, vegetarian elbow macaroni and tomato sauce with cheese spread and snack bread. I don't know what to choose there because again, they all sound delightful, particularly when compared with the inedible sawdust shaped into food shapes that they used to feed us in the yeah, old school. Yeah, same MRIs. thing.
2: They they're missing things like Thai chicken. Oh god, and, yeah, yeah, and uh, was the uh, one chicken with, the, with rice? Yeah, chicken with rice.
1: There was a hard noodle one too that was like it was like chicken with hard noodles or something like that. It was it was. It, they they tried, and it looks like they've done a lot better over the last, I don't know, last time I had. Last MREs I had were German MREs, which were just like, it is pork. Be a small pork. Eat the pork. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of pork on RC North. Uh, but yeah, so that's a, a poll that's available there. Uh, if you're older like Jake and I, you can look at it and get angry that you didn't get to eat any of these while you were out in the field. Or you can choose whichever one is your least favorite. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to speak with J.J. Montanaro, financial planner from USAA and find out why life insurance is so important to the military and veteran community and just to people in general and what USAA is offering members of USAA, those who are eligible to join when it comes to life insurance. But most importantly, we're just going to talk about how much life insurance is enough. How much does it cost? How difficult is it to get it? All of that coming up on The Morning Briefing right after this.
2: We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com.
3: Connecting Vets every day.
1: Online and all over
2: social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets.
1: You're listening to The Morning Briefing on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day to the news that they should know, the news they need to know, and the news we think they'd want to know. And we know because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn that uniform and just as importantly knows what it's like to have taken it off for the last time. So visit ConnectingVets.com and follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a financial planner, an expert on things financial for USAA. His name is JJ Montanaro, and he joins us on The Morning Briefing now. JJ, good morning. How are you today?
0: Good morning, Eric. Great to be here. I'm doing well, thanks.
1: We wanted to talk to you about a specific thing. And that specific thing is that there's some new survey data about what would happen to basically a family if the primary income earner was lost. First, can you tell us just a little bit about what that survey shows and what it tells us about particularly the military and veteran communities?
0: Yeah, sure. The, the survey was done by LIMRA, and essentially, some of the key findings included the idea that a third of families out there would be squeezed financially if the breadwinner, if something happened to the breadwinner, within a month, and that number cropped up to fifty percent if something happened within the first six months. So just kind of a stark reminder that life insurance is something that uh, really should be in, in, in all of our financial toolkits and a foundational element of, of financial planning for, for the military community. Uh, I think it pops up in a couple of different ways. Obviously, we have service members' group life insurance for those that are currently serving, and, and those that transition out have got to take a look at uh, where they stand relative to losing that benefit when they leave the military.
1: And that, of course, is something that I think we take for granted while we're in. You know, you look at your pay stub every two weeks and you see SGLI being taken out. Uh, So, yeah, that money would be there if you were to pass away while in uniform. As veterans, what should we be looking at when it comes to life insurance? How do we know the amount that we need? How do we know how much we should be paying for it? How do we figure out life insurance from a veteran perspective?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing that we need to do is, and you'll hear rules of thumb out there, Eric, as far as how much life insurance is the right amount of life insurance, but what I like to talk to folks about is the idea of going on using a calculator. We've got one at USA.com that, that people can use, but using a calculator to really plug in the, the specifics of their financial situation and their financial goals, for example, how much debt they have or that want, they want paid off, or what type of income replacement they want for their spouse or loved ones, and, and build a scenario based on those goals to come up with a, a number that, that is, fits the individual. And that's, So that's where I would start, is rather than use a rule of thumb or a, a, a broad guideline, is get down into the, into the weeds and look at your own situation and what you want to accomplish to figure out the right amount. With
1: many in the veteran community, when it comes to finance, whether it's investing, whether it's saving, whether it's insurance, uh, it's kind of looked at as uh, something too difficult to deal with. For those people out there who may think eh, I don't need life insurance, why would you tell them they absolutely do need life insurance?
0: Now, ultimately, it comes down to protecting the ones they love. So, it, so it may not be a comfortable topic, and and frankly especially for veterans, uh, we, we have a little bit of a sense of, of that nothing is going to happen to us, uh, and that can, be, that can be a roadblock to, to looking at something like life insurance, because why look at it? Because we're going to be okay for now and forever, and you, you and I know that's not true, but I think if you look at it from that perspective, that this is something that needs to move to the top of the list as opposed to something that we can procrastinate on.
1: Is it ever too late to get life insurance? And by that, I mean, you know, I mean, if you get out of the military, maybe getting it that day is the best way to go about it. So there's no lapsed coverage. But if you've been out for a while and haven't had it, is it too late to go back in on on the life insurance game?
0: Yeah, no. Life insurance, it, of course, if, if the house is burning down... Uh, then it's probably too late to get the homeowner's insurance. And the same thing could be said with life insurance. If if you've got uh if you're on your deathbed or you've got serious health issues, it may be more difficult, if not impossible, to get the life insurance. But as far as just in, in, in a general sense the, the younger you get it, the less expensive it's going to be, the less health issues typically that, that folks will have, and the easier it's going to be to get life insurance. But uh, it's, it's certainly never too late to take a look at it. And, uh, and again, don't think it's going to be that complicated, complex, or time-consuming. I had my daughter just, we added a grandchild in the last month, and she went on and did, a, did the full application on her phone. took about five minutes. So it's not that burdensome of a process.
1: Let's talk about that process. And of course, we're speaking with JJ Montanaro from USAA. So you'll be able to speak specifically to some of the things that USAA is doing. Of course, a huge military and veteran audience uh, and membership in USAA. What's the process like for getting life insurance for a USAA member?
0: So as I said, it's it's fairly easy. You, if you'd like to, you can call up the, the 800 number and talk to somebody and have them walk through it with you, but if you, if you know what you want or you use a calculator to figure out what you want, you can do it on your phone or online in just a few minutes. And so I think one of the things that we try to do is is make sure that we're servicing that military community in a way, in and in in, in using tools that are going to make it easy for them to do what they want to do, given their mobile lifestyle. And so that's reflected in, in that process we just talked about. It's also reflected in our product. We have what's called Military Protection Plus, so that includes special uh, severe benefit severe injury benefit it includes accelerated underwriting and an, an SGL, SGLI replacement clause so that uh, members that have that coverage can go in and replace SGLI when they leave the military without going through medical underwriting so our focus is definitely on the on the broader military community and that's reflected in how we do business
1: A question for you. For people who have a job uh, that includes life insurance, like let's say their company provides life insurance up to a certain amount, do they need additional life insurance from an organization like USAA on top of that? Does it depend? I mean, how do you look at that aspect?
0: Yeah, that's a great, it, it depends question, Eric, because one of the things about life insurance through your employer, like the SGLI that we just talked about, or with the civilian Corporations is typically it's relatively inexpensive and it's and it's very easy to do. It's just part of the check the box the check the box in the uh, in the process when you're when you're enrolling for your benefits. But at the same time, it may not be portable. So it may if you move from one employer to another employer, that may not be coverage that follows you, or it may be limited in terms of how much coverage you can get, and that might not be necessary. That might not necessarily be enough. To give you what you need, so oftentimes it can make sense to supplement employer coverage with a privately owned policy.
1: So it's 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 never a case of well, I've already got life insurance. I definitely don't need any additional life insurance. Correct?
0: Well, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say never, but it, it, it's oftentimes it, it, that's not the case. And again, we go back to we were talking about the a, a young service member who's just starting out in the workforce, joined the service. He's got she she's got four hundred thousand dollars of group life insurance through the military and and doesn't have obligations that come anywhere near that, well they're gonna be able to say, Hey, my employer coverage is is all I need. Now that again, they may want to go back and look at it look at the future and, and position themselves for the future but but in the here and now they're probably okay.
1: In general, JJ, and we're speaking with JJ Montanaro, financial planner from USAA. What's the average monthly cost of life insurance for someone? Uh, you know, the average veteran who's just gotten out of the military.
0: Yeah, I think the average veteran who's just separating from the military would be would be surprised to see that they could get the same type of coverage that they had in the military for a cost that was roughly the same. And and I go back, I I, I can't remember if I mentioned my, my, I did mention my grandchild, but my my daughter and her husband are both around 30, one a little bit younger, one a little bit older. But for a half a million dollars of coverage for a 20-year term policy, it's going to cost them about $60 altogether for half a million dollars of coverage each. So a lot of people hear that number and go, wow, that's a a lot less expensive than you might have thought.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. When you hear that, you know, $60 can get you half a million, that's a pretty good good investment right there, pretty good risk-to-reward take when it comes to life insurance. That's what we've been speaking about with J.J. Montanaro, financial planner from USAA. J.J., if people are interested in finding out more about this, finding out about the services that USAA offers, where would you recommend that they go to do so?
0: Eric, they can visit us at usaa.com forward slash life
1: that's all you need to do. And uh, again, it shows that if, if you are out there and the primary income earner from the home passes away, it puts families in a very bad position. Life insurance can make a difference in that situation. And we've been speaking about it with JJ Montanaro from USAA. JJ, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it.
0: All right, Eric. Thanks for having me. Have a great day.
1: So Jake, let me ask you, you work here, so I believe you get life insurance through the company. Do you know how much life insurance you would get if you passed away?
2: I honestly do not know. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure either.
1: I had an idea with SGLI when I was in. I think it was like $100,000 or something like uh, that.
2: The SGLI, unless you quantify it and put a number in, it's $400,000.
1: Okay, so then $400,000. See, I wasn't even right about that. And it's one of these things that, I honestly, I don't think we think about when we're in the military because SGLI is just taken out of your paycheck. You know, it's a couple dollars a month. It is what it is. You never really think about it. You think, well, that's a good thing. Military is a dangerous job, no matter what you're doing in it. Uh, More dangerous jobs, of course, uh, there are than others. But it is something that, you know you don't want to think about you don't want to think about death but particularly for me now as i get older i have a family I have my wife and son um my wife has a great job so i think they'd be okay if i were to uh, drop dead today and uh, and that was it and i didn't have any life insurance it would not be easy for them for a number of reasons but financially i think they'd be all right for a while. Um, she makes more money than I do, so I think that would that would be the biggest uh, factor there. But there are a lot of families where that's not the case, where the, the husband, the wife, or the significant other, or whatever the case may be, doesn't make as much money as another, or one of them doesn't work. And you've got someone passing away who doesn't have life insurance, then that source of income is cut off. And in many cases, not all cases, but many cases, the one who doesn't have an income or who earns less money, part of the reason for that is because they're not qualified to earn more money. So it puts you in a financial hard space. But as JJ was just telling us, life insurance, whether you go through USAA or another company, it can be a lifesaver for your survivors and make sure that they're taken care of. Because when you pass away, there's a lot of costs to think about that I know none of us want to think about. Funerals are not cheap. I mean, you ever watch the show Six Feet Under on uh, on HBO? No, really good show. Uh, it was on I don't know fifteen twenty years ago or so. It's not on anymore, but I'm sure you can find it on their on demand app or whatever. And the 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 funeral would be ridiculously expensive. The casket would cost a lot. Cremation costs a lot. There, it's not cheap to die. I mean, you don't think about it because it's not you that's going to be spending the money, but somebody is. And it's going to be somebody that you care about more likely than not. It's going to be your family members. It's going to be your parents, your spouse, your child, someone like that. Life insurance gives you the opportunity to defray those costs that surround the death and then also to set them up for what's going to be a difficult emotional time. And even if somebody has a good job, they may they may struggle with it for a while and they may need to take time off to deal with the fact that they just lost someone so close and important to them, uh, it's really a good idea to have it, and it's a good idea to know what you get through your employer if you do. To then know if you need some supplemental life insurance on top of that, you know
2: exactly. And uh, that's why I go. I actually bank the USAA. So after hearing this interview, I'm actually going to go about and look through their options.
1: Yeah, and you can uh, you can go there and check out the website the uh, the website that he just gave you, which I think is usaa.com/life. Uh, if you go there, I'm going to double check on that link to make sure I'm not, hold on while I'm typing it in, USSA, U, USSA, usaa.com slash life, and I think that's the one that, yeah, that brings you to the life insurance one, and you can get a quote there. They have, as he said, it's easy to do online. They have a phone number if you're if you're a USAA member. If you're not, whoever your uh, insurance is through or your bank is through, contact them ask you know there are companies out there that do it do your research though don't just go up to like you know bill's life insurance that's in the, uh, in the next to the bodega on the corner in midtown manhattan yeah. <laughs> with the shady sign up on the window made out of cardboard with sharpie look and do your research and make sure that it's a reputable company that you're going through because uh, you would think that the insurance industry is something where you wouldn't have too many bad actors you absolutely do. You have scams out there. You have people that will take your money and have no way to pay out any money to you. So make sure that they are properly licensed and that they are um, doing the right thing. And I know a little bit about the industry because my mother works in the insurance industry and it's uh, it can be complicated, but it's worth going through the trouble of finding out what you need to find out i mean that's the key with life insurance that's for your your family it's to it's to help your family and not be even more of a burden when you die because think about that man think about i don't even want to think about it but my wife and son going through me passing away something happens that is going to be uh, emotionally devastating for them and then if there's also financial difficulty tied to that that can lead to lifelong problems. I mean, you do not want to set your family up for that, you know?
2: Yeah, because you got to remember that all the, that a lot of the financial problems you have could be transferred onto your significant other.
1: Oh, yeah, they absolutely can.
2: Yeah, so you have to remember that it's not just money just for the funeral, for the burial, for the cremation, or for the whatever. It's things that you left unfinished could fall onto them. Yeah. So it's good to have a source you know, a source of income, I guess you could say, for, you know, when, if bad things happen.
1: It makes me think of the horrible stories of the bureaucracy of DOD where, you know, someone was, was killed in action. And then the, the, I think it was the army. There were a couple stories like this where the army then went after the family because, you know, their, their rifle was lost. Like they didn't, they didn't, the rifle wasn't recovered. So they charged the family for the right. It's like, what are you to this is not a soldier who lost his rifle. That, okay, hammer that guy for somebody yeah. losing their M4. But when someone is killed in action, you oh, you're telling me the person who was killed didn't have the opportunity to gather their weapon and bring it back? Oh, how shocking. But things like that do happen. And while things like that are typically straightened out eventually, and and you're not gonna have the family of a deceased soldier paying for that soldier's rifle because it wasn't recovered, there are uh, just any added difficulties around a devastating period of time where someone is killed or someone dies or someone you know has a significant injury any additional factors that can be avoided that would have a negative impact should be avoided and life insurance is a big key with that when it comes to death
2: yeah and you, again you have to remember that death is not the kind of thing you plan out so I'm not trying to sound like an insurance salesman here, (laughs) but literally, I mean, you could go outside and get hit by a meteor, you know, you never know. So it's, it's the kind of thing that you want to have. It's. You know what? It's the kind of thing you want to need and have, and not need then need and not
1: have. There are so many things out there that that can kill you at a moment's notice. I mean, uh, we work in a big city. There are buses and taxis flying around here. I drive uh, thirty miles to and from work each day on a highway. All it takes is one blown tire on a semi or a car making a bad decision, and that can be it. And you know, especially sh- you and me who ride motorcycles. Oh yeah, I mean I'm incredibly. Careful on that motorcycle. I give people a wide berth, and if anyone's coming anywhere near close to me, I'll go off the road and get onto the grass if I think there's any danger. Because when you're in a when you're on a bike, I mean, you've you've I guess technically you've got an escape route to jump off of it, but more likely than not, you get hit. You're coming out on the losing end. And same with a pedestrian. You know that's why I'm I'm always shocked. And when I worked in New York City, uh, I and I would drive into work uh, when I worked the night shift. I was always shocked at how many pedestrians just walk out into the street without even looking. Oh, I got a walk signal. I'll just go now. Do you know how many people are killed by cars in New York City every year? <laughs> Those cab drivers up there, they're out of their minds and they are flying through red lights all the time. Here, I see it almost every day when I leave. I drive out uh, through a a residential area, mostly, and there are people who have their earbuds in, staring at their phone, never even slow down when they get to a crosswalk. Whether they have a walk sign, whether there's a stop sign there, I don't understand that because here's a simple equation. I'm not very good at math. Not particularly. However, car plus person...
2: Eagles bad juju.
1: Yeah, I know I know the uh, answer to that equation and person rarely if ever wins in that situation. So, uh, watch where you're going, but also just it's just a reminder that uh, life is something that is it's fleeting. It can end at any moment and life insurance Great option to go through, and if you are eligible for USAA, as JJ Montanaro just told us, go to their website usaa.com/life, and you can find out all about their life insurance benefits. And if you served in the military, you're eligible for USAA, so uh, you know it's something to check out. Even if you uh, are in a USAA member at this point. You're listening to the Morning Briefing here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com, Eric Dame and Jake Hughes live in the Entercom Radio ConnectingVets.com Morning Briefing Studio. We got to shorten that name up a little bit. Yeah. That's a little that's a little too wordy. Here's something that's a little wordy but a little important. If your disability severance payment was taxed, the IRS owes you a refund. There are over 133,000 disabled veterans who receive a disability severance payment, and there's good news for some of them. It could be in for a tax refund. One-time disability severance payments for veterans with combat-related injuries are exempt from being taxed, but as Kayla Jackson tells us in a story on ConnectingVets.com, between 91 and 2016 – Thousands of veterans in those situations were taxed anyway. You see, there's something called the Combat Injured Veteran Tax Fairness Act of 2016, which means the DOD is now required to identify veterans who were wrongly charged the tax and refund them the full amount. So the IRS calculated standard refund amounts. We actually know them because the IRS, they're, they're not always uh, checking everything when they're taking money from you. But when they're giving money back, they're going to give you back exactly what you, yeah. <laughs> what you deserve they count and not pennies. a penny more. So, for the tax years from 91 to 2005, you'll receive $1,750, $2,400 for 2006 to 2010, and $3,200 for 2011 to 2016. If you're filing for a refund, you can submit a claim based on your actual disability severance using the completed form 1040X. It's an amended U.S. individual income tax return. Uh, so here you go. Depending on your situation, your deadline to file for a claim might differ. One year from the date of the DOD notice, three years after the due date for filing the original return, two years after the tax was paid for the year the disability severance paid was made. You can check out that and oh so much more at ConnectingVets.com. Also soon to come. I don't think it's up yet, right? The video of you doing the Army PFT? That's going to be up there soon. We're also going to have the full interview with Senior Chief Kristen Beck, retired Navy SEAL. Doesn't want you to think of her as transgender or a man or a woman. Just wants you to think of her as a good person and doesn't seem to have too much interest and being used by uh, extremists on either side, the people saying like, Oh, this is what's wrong with the military today. Or the people who uh, want to use uh, senior chief Beck as an example that, you know, uh, that all transgender people are wonderful heroes and everything like that. The only thing that senior chief back seems to be interested in being used as an activist for is making sure that uh, kids in the LGBT community understand that they can live an amazing life. And, Considering, particularly within the transgender community, as Senior brought up yesterday, the suicide rate is insanely high. You're talking like 40%, I think, was the number that Senior Chief threw out there. Uh, That's an important thing. So we talk about that. Also, talk about Private Manning. Now, some people think... (laughs) Well, senior Chief Beck is transgender. Private Manning's transgender. You know, must they must get along?
2: That must that is the dumbest argument I've ever heard.
1: Well, there are a lot of people who don't know a lot about that community. It's a very small community. It's something that uh, people often hear about without any experience with. And in this case, you'll find out by listening to the interview with Senior Chief Beck. Uh, the senior chief is not a fan of the young disgraced private.
2: That does not shock me.
1: No, it, it is it is interesting. We also, of course, talk about the SEAL community's response to having a transgendered SEAL veteran, a decorated transgender SEAL veteran with the Bronze Star with V for valor, served on DevGrew, a.k.a. SEAL Team 6, Purple Heart recipient. I mean, this is a SEAL who was a hard-charging, high-performer, special operator uh, in the in, War. I mean, in, in Iraq, and in Afghanistan. Now, though, some SEALs seem to only see Senior Chief Beck as that transgender person, and they don't want anything to do with that. So we talk about that. Also talk about some, I guess, disparate responses within the SEAL community towards people who are uh, in the public eye now, where some people, and the example that, uh, that I brought up was Jocko Willink, of course, retired SEAL commander, who uh, does an amazing podcast, has written some great books. No one seems to have, well, not no one, but not many people seem to have too much of a problem with what he's doing, yet some of those people who have no problem with him do have a problem with Senior Chief Beck. Huh, I wonder why that could be. Gee, it's a it's a mystery. Also turns out that the Senior Chief served with Jocko on the teams and knows, knows him quite well, and uh, uh, apparently uh, ha- they have not spoken since uh, Senior Chief Beck, uh, uh, you know, got out of the SEALs and began transitioning to becoming a, a female. So it's an interesting, fascinating interview. It's a long one. Normally our interviews are 25 minutes or so. Senior Chief Beck came in, we started talking. We went an hour before I realized that we had gone an hour. <laughs> so played the whole thing yesterday. But if you missed it, you're going to be able to listen to it later today. Uh, really, I mean, by the time you're hearing this, it may already be up on the website. We'll have to uh, have to check on that. But... The, uh, the full interview will be available for streaming and downloading on the website. And that website is ConnectingVets.com, brought to you by Entercom. ConnectingVets.com is connecting vets every day through a variety of platforms. Video, audio, news, benefits, it's all there for you. And it's all on social media, at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We'll be right back with the Executive Director of AmVets, Joe Schinelli. You're listening to The Morning Briefing. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing, Thursday edition. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and ConnectingVets.com. Well, that's your website. ConnectingVets.com is connecting vets every day through a variety of platforms with a cornucopia full of information. We've got stuff on benefits. We've got stuff on the news. We've got stuff on... The VA, we've got everything. And we talk to successful veterans. We talk to veterans organizations. We've got it all for the veteran community and our friends and family. And you can check it all out at ConnectingVets.com or by following us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Speaking of veterans organizations, our next guest is the executive director of one of the big ones. AMVETS is one of the largest veteran service organizations working tirelessly to help the veteran community each and every day. Joe is typically in studio with us on Thursdays, but today is calling in because he's on the road. Guess what he's doing? Helping veterans, of course. He was just down at the first AMVETS Heal Summit down in Nashville, the town hall meeting, uh, and joins us now to talk about that and much more. Joe, good morning. How are you today?
3: you never better, Eric. Good morning. How are you? You
1: keep saying never better. I, I just imagine each and every day is a better one for Joe Schinelli, I guess.
3: Is that the case? You, you got it. If you do a little line chart, it's just going to go up and up and up. So
1: so as I mentioned, today is a great day because you've got your first AMVETS Heal Summit the town hall series uh, it was completed last night, so let's talk about that. How did everything go?
3: It went really well. Um, of course, we had some uh, things to iron out here, but uh, it was great to be able to hear from veterans uh, directly from them, an unfiltered forum. Um, they were they spoke for about two hours, covered a lot of different topics. Uh, some of the things that, you know, we're certainly we've been talking about for a while and really validated uh, other things were really new to us. Uh, it was very local, which is Great, and they they did not know it, but um, until the very end. But we had several uh, very senior um, VA officials in the audience, and we did not introduce them ahead of time or anything like that. That way, people really were able to, to feel uh, free to speak openly about their concerns and and some of them about their uh, their good experiences with the VA as well, and then the um, at the end, we kind of did the reveal and let them know the officials had been there among them, and they got up and talked a little bit about some of the lessons they had just learned from listening to the veterans, and we'll be following up with those officials to ensure the the concerns and, the, and some of the ideas that we heard are are acted upon. Um, and in, in the end, it was just it was very positive and a, a great first step uh, for making the veteran's voice heard a little bit better. Uh, some of the concerns that were heard uh, included access, of course. Um, we had a veteran who had uh, tried for quite a bit to get into the VA healthcare, mental health care system. Uh, he was self-identifying that he was having uh, some pretty serious uh, situations with his PTSD. Um, and he was not let into the system. Uh, they had told him according to this veteran that if he was not homicidal or suicidal at the time, there was nothing they could do for him, uh, there. Uh, that's something obviously very serious. He ended up having a, uh, somewhat serious incident a couple of days later. Uh, so we talked a lot about access. Um, we also had a, had some veterans who talked about consistency or lack thereof. Um, Talk for th- simple things like a type of eyeglasses that are available at one VA uh, one side of the town, and different types of glasses that are available at different uh, another side, and the inequities on that, and h- how confusing that can be. And uh, same things with things like prosthetics and oxygen. Uh, so, so a lot, of, a wide variety of uh, topics discussed. And, uh, again, first step.
1: And the first step is always uh, the biggest one to take to get things kicked off. Hearing those concerns, and as you said, uh, as the audience was unaware, but you were, there were VA officials, some pretty high-ranking ones in the audience. Were you able to talk to them about what they thought about what they heard at that, uh, that town hall meeting last night?
3: Uh, yes. Yeah. So First, we, we had them address the crowd uh, at the end, but then um, I did speak with them, and our medical executive, Lena McKenzie, who you've had on the show here a couple of times, uh, she was able to speak in a, a way where you know, she knows exactly what, what they should be saying and what should and should not be happening, and so I, I felt the, po- the feedback was positive, um, that they certainly listened. They filled uh, several sheets of paper, each one of them, with notes. Uh, but the follow-up is going to what matters here, uh, as I said at the town hall yesterday. Talk is is that now we need to see action, and the, it's great for these these senior VA officials are local, so they're the Visin Deputy Director. Uh, they were the the Deputy Director and the Director of the facilities right here in Nashville, uh, so definitely on the ground type of things. Uh, we we're also able to speak a lot about the, the HEAL team and being able to break down these barriers. And if someone has an issue where they can't get into the VA or maybe they're not, they're concerned they're not getting into the right part of the VA, uh, the HEAL team can help them do that. And so we had a lot of connections there. Uh, veterans are also able to connect with our employment and our um, benefits programs there as well.
1: Well, it's good to hear that people were able to see that, you know, their, their concerns are at least not falling on deaf ears, that there are people at the VA who are listening, who are there and want to know about these things. Is that part of the goal of the HEAL Summit to make sure people know that, you know, they're, they're not just shouting into the wind with the concerns that they have with the VA or the praise that they have with the VA as well? Yeah,
3: absolutely. And uh, this is really putting a, a face to who they are. So this is an opportunity at the end for the veterans and these senior officials from the VA to, to speak face-to-face and for and that helps both directions. Of course, the veterans are able to see that it's a real person who's making these decisions and working on this reform. And then the officials are able to really see the veteran face-to-face and hear directly from those people who they impact.
1: We're speaking with Joe Schinelli, Executive Director of American Veterans, a.k.a. AMVETS, one of the large VSOs working around the country to help their membership and veterans in general get everything that they need and everything that they deserve. Of course, a lot of that has to do with the VA, and that was, of course, kind of the uh, the subject of the AMVETS heel town hall meeting down in Knoxville, sorry, Nashville, Tennessee, yesterday. Uh, I understand that Joe is going to be visiting veterans in Knoxville today, uh, but there's a lot more going on at the va on a national level including some upheaval at the top that's something that we've become accustomed to between shulkin admiral jackson all the other nonsense going on over there what's the latest that you're hearing about what's going on over at the va joe
3: so carolyn clancy uh well uh well respected doctor someone we've worked with well uh she was just recently named uh, one of the top 50 uh, most influential medical professionals in the world. Um, she has been. She has stepped down. Uh, I'd say rather suddenly um, this week um, as the top healthcare official in the VA. She had been running VHA, which is a Veterans Healthcare Administration. Um, we had been working with her closely. She was due to come down to our convention uh, in Orlando in a couple of weeks, and so. It was a little surprising, but um, they brought in somebody who ha- has been around for a little bit now. Um, David uh, Shulkin, when he was secretary, um, sorry, when he became under secretary for health, he had brought on a, uh, a, a gentleman uh, by the name of Richard Stone, uh, who has been around the medical community for quite a while as well. Uh, he's he just came back now, and so he's going to assume the same title which is the executive in charge of the VHA but he's basically now the one running Veterans Health. Um, One of the more troubling things here though is he's the third person to to be running VHA in a year and a half so that really hurts momentum, hurts consistency, it really uh, creates a a, a real void in consistency. We understand he's in the running, though, for the permanent position, and we do. We're told that there may be some settling of the desk coming uh, soon. We believe Robert Wilkie is going to be confirmed by the end of this month as secretary, and we believe that they will shortly thereafter name a permanent replacement uh, for VHA. Um, But that is the person running the nation's largest integrated health system, and. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of moving parts. And if they're not all moving in the same direction, the veterans suffer. And uh, I know I'm sounding like a broken record because we've been saying this for so long now, uh, but we're, we're really hopeful that this will become the uh, the final step towards some consistency.
1: Well, it's been a game of musical chairs over at the VA, particularly over the last seven months or so. I mean, dating back to when uh, Dr. Shulkin's uh, troubles started. Before that, things were going fairly steady, although there were some gapped billets, as we call them, in the military and everything. This is important, though, for them to find consistency. And is the key Robert Wilkie getting into that position? And do you think he will then have the authority to fill all of these gapped billets, as it were, at the VA, where you have positions that have been unfilled or filled with acting people for quite a long time?
3: Yes, and definitely. It starts at the top. And that's why we've been stressing to the Senate the importance of getting this confirmation done as quick as possible. The committee, uh, Senate Veterans Affairs Committee did move extremely quickly. Um, there was one no vote uh, against uh, Wilkie, which is the first time in history as far as we can all tell. Um, but getting him into position, um, nothing more can move forward until that happens. And uh, so we believe that'll happen here in the next week or so. And um, Paul Lawrence, who is the new and just seated Undersecretary for Benefits, uh, that's a huge step forward to have someone finally in that position after multiple years of having the position filled. By temporary acting uh, officials. So, um, you, you said earlier when Shulkin was there, things were running smoothly. They were, but they were running smoothly under acting uh, uh, under secretaries. So, when that happens, it, it really does affect the middle management. Cause middle management realizes every time that there's a new undersecretary, things will change, whether it's actual people change or concepts or just uh, overall mindset. And so, Getting these uh, undersecretaries permanent, uh, they are, are different than the secretary position. Secretary position can change every year or more often, as it has uh, in the last several years in a row. Uh, the undersecretary positions are supposed to be three-year appointments. And so you really do get an opportunity to start building momentum. Uh, so getting this, uh, the healthcare position permanent is, is going to be a big step.
1: We're speaking with Joe Schinelli, Executive Director of AMVETS. The VA uh, confirmation hearing, the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee confirmation that went through, uh, that essentially then moves it to a floor vote for the Senate, does it concern you that non-vote and I believe it was Senator Bernie Sanders who came out and said that it wasn't a vote against uh, against Wilkie but that it was about Trump and it's like well th- he's not going to be the secretary of the VA Wilkie as if he's qualified I, w- what were your thoughts when you heard that this was the first time that it didn't go through
3: 100% Well we're we're certainly in a era of unprecedented political uh, action it was disappointing because I agree. Uh, you know, I guess, as you said, Senator Sanders said it himself, this really had nothing to do with the person he was voting for, rather the president who nominated him. Um, it, it is what it is. In the end, it really won't affect anything. Uh, again, it was disappointing. I, I do believe uh, uh, Robert Wilkie deserves a unanimous uh, consent. Uh, in support, but in the end, I believe Senator Sanders, and I certainly believe the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee will support his initiatives, Um, and so far, uh, everything uh, Robert Wilkie has said is very much in line with where we believe the VA should be headed as well.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, that's that's the key, you know, getting the right person in the position there. And and just personally hearing someone say, well, I, I disagree with uh, the person who nominated him, but the individual is fine. Uh, that's kind of a disturbing, uh, disturbing thing, but it's also kind of a sign of how politics seems to be working these days. Speaking of politics, the Senate is apparently going to start working on legislation to extend disability benefits to the Blue Water Navy veterans. These, of course, being Navy veterans off the coast of Vietnam who are exposed to Agent Orange but are not eligible currently for the same benefits as those who are boots on the ground in Vietnam. What can you tell us about the work that the Senate's going to be doing on that?
3: So we're really happy to build a report that the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee is planning an August 1 hearing on the issue. Um, this is going to uh, hopefully extend disability benefits for its about 90,000 Vietnam veterans um, who work around toxic chemicals, Asian orange, uh, during the um, Vietnam War. Uh, these are the blue water veterans. So These are veterans who were I'm not exactly sure. Uh, as a Navy veteran, maybe you, you know what the blue waters, they were further away from shore, um, but so right now, there's presumptives, if you were in country, if you stepped foot in Vietnam uh, while Agent Orange was being used or shortly after, um, and you've developed any of these terrible diseases, um, then you're automatically eligible for health care and the benefits. Well, we know there's been a lot of Navy veterans, uh, Navy veterans in particular, but there are others who were on Navy vessels as well, um, who were dealing with the chemicals or with equipment that had been exposed to the chemicals back out at sea. And until now, and you know how long ago this was, until now, they were not eligible for this health care and benefits. So a, a lot of these veterans have suffered. A lot of them have died, of course. And their families have had to go through those sacrifices uh, without the compensation or the, the, the proper health care from the VA. Uh, so this is finally uh, should take care of that. Um, It is about $1.1 billion, which has been really the sticking point of what's held it up for so long. Uh, It has not been about the research. Um, No matter what uh, politicians want to tell you, they've known for a long time, we've all known for a long time, that there were a lot of veterans who have been exposed uh, to this this toxicities and without the the right care or compensation. So we're hopeful this will finally be done by the end of this year. Um, It's going to be paid for by extending a, a fee on VA home loans um, for veterans who, who have less than 30% uh, service connected disabilities. Uh, that fee is already out there. It was just due to expire, so it'll be extended. Um, we're not fans of charging one veteran to pay for something for another veteran. Uh, but this does seem to be a, uh, a a fair way to go here, and we're, we're really uh, looking forward to the Navy veterans, um, and these Blue Water veterans, to finally get what they deserve.
1: It's certainly something that seems like the common sense decision for the Senate to make, and it's it's kind of a uh, a warning flag this that this issue has gone on for so long, for decades. When it comes to other more recent issues like burn pits, we can't, as I believe it was uh, uh, Senator Isaacson told me kicking the can down the road, this is an example of how that can go terribly, terribly wrong. And now, you know, with burn pits, we have a, a, an opportunity to fix that before it gets to this point. But uh, is there any time frame on it? Do you have any time that you expect it to be done and time frame for those Blue Water Navy vets to start receiving those benefits?
3: Um, we're really hoping for December. Um, and I know that seems a, a long way away, but in in Capitol Hill terms, that's that'd be quick, quickly uh, with the hearing coming in on August 1st. Uh, I believe the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, at least enough people on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, are in full support of this. The hearing is not to decide, per se, whether to advance this forward or not. It's really to ensure that they've covered all the bases and that there won't be uh, people left out of this. So, I, I feel it's on a good path. The House has already passed it, uh, which we've been able to work with them very closely on that. So we're feeling good um, on it. December comes up to be because Congress doesn't typically vote on big things until they have deadlines. And so uh, I anticipate a vote for this just before the holiday break.
1: Joe Cinelli feeling good about the Blue Water Navy legislation. Don't know how good he's feeling about some proposed fee hikes for TRICARE recipients. We've talked about this on the show. It was an incredibly popular story on our website as well. People finding out that after retirees had been told just this January that they would not see those fee hikes this year. Now there are, uh, of course, talks uh, the last that we heard that those hikes could be implemented and charged to those those retirees. Have you had, had any updates on on this or do you know where the process is
3: so uh, unfortunately the update here is that the 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 senate armed Armed services committee has passed it out of committee Um, so where we are now is that uh, this is part of what will be in conference for the dispense authorization act so that the house has not passed it Uh, the senate has the senate has put a uh, really pretty red bow on this thing made it sound like something that's a a great way to stabilize TRICARE. Uh, And and to be fair, TRICARE needs stabilization. TRICARE is maybe not sustainable in in its current form, Um, but definitely adding billions of dollars in out-of-pocket costs for working-age military retirees um, is not the way to do this and we're talking about substantial uh it, as we've talked about before on the show here uh substantial increases in, in fees it's really breaking promises that have been made to these to these veterans um, and it would continue to, to break the promises in the future as well um, there's no grandfather clause here there's there's no way to undo the planning that These veterans have already put into place. Um, So we have partnered with other groups uh, about almost about thirty other groups, and we are we're hitting them hard. We're letting them know clearly. I say them, you know, Senate and the House at this point. Uh, like so, they they both have to come together and make a decision here, and we're letting them know that this would be a, a terrible decision, and, and really would be a, a breach uh, of their promise uh, of the promise that this country has made to these retirees. Um, the, the Senate uh, was going to continue to try to paint this as a pretty picture here, but it, it's it's really a, a terrible terrible idea.
1: And is there anything that can be done at this point for it? I mean, you said it's made it out of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, or sorry, Senate Armed Services Committee, I believe it is, uh, not the Veterans yes. Affairs Committee. Uh, and the House hasn't passed it yet. I mean, what do people do if they don't want this to happen?
3: So the the House doesn't have to pass it per se. Um, but what we do want, so what happens when a, a, a two different bills are passed, you have to have a it comes sister bills or brother bills, a bill that's in the house and the Senate has to come together and the two sides come to a conference and they have to come up and decide with one, one uh, document, you know, one set of language that will be presented to the president to be signed into law. And at this point, the house needs a hold steady on this. Um, so after it's, it's, a, after they come to one document then both sides have to vote on it we need people to reach out to their senators and their representative in the house to ensure that they all vote against this as long as this is in there and the best way to do that uh, because if it does get into that document it's really hard to actually vote against it there's so many other things in there so we really need people to be reaching out to their lawmakers now lots of notes cannot make it through conference and the lawmakers will know what that means. Um, we have put out alerts, so we're making it easy for our members to be able to, to make, send those emails or make those phone calls, and most organizations are.
1: Yeah, it's uh, boy, it's it's something that a lot of people are very concerned about, but unfortunately, a lot of people also don't know about. It. It's kind of shocking how they do these things very quietly and <laughs> think that's a little bit on purpose. What Amvets is doing though, there's nothing quiet about it. They're out there in the community, like at their Amvets Heel Town Hall event down in Tennessee last night. Uh, as we move towards the end of the interview here, Joe, is there a next Heel uh, Town Hall planned, and if so, where is it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So our our next one is in Orlando on August 8th in the evening. Um, it is at the Curie Royale. Uh, so it's just outside Disneyland. Uh, it's the day before our national convention. Uh, so it's a, a large convention center. We expect uh, up to a thousand participants there. Um, we think it's going to be very useful in uh, letting the nation know about these town halls. Uh, we're also we have uh, another large one in Ohio. We have some much smaller ones coming up as well. You know, really driving for that local feel in uh, Pennsylvania, Missouri, as well. Uh, we'll be getting out to California uh, by this fall, and uh, we, we certainly plan to have one in every state soon, and then uh, continue to to grow because there's veterans everywhere, and they all deserve to be heard.
1: They absolutely do, and that's what the VSOs are all about, making sure that the veteran voices are heard on Capitol Hill and around the country. AMVETS Executive Director Joe Schinelli, Marine Corps veteran, has been our guest. Joe, if people want to find out more about AMVETS, where do they
3: go to do so? Please find us at AMVETS.org or on any social network.
1: Well, there you go. Joe Schinelli, thanks for calling in from down there in Tennessee. I know you got some veterans to go meet up with. in uh, Is it Knoxville today that you were uh, going to? Yeah. Going to?
3: Yes, I'll be in Knoxville in about two hours. Well, there you Appreciate go. Appreciate you me on to Eric.
1: Well, say, say, say thank you to them for us, for their service, and say hello, and thanks for all the work that you guys are doing down there, Joe. Have a great day.
3: Great. Thank you. You too. Take care.
1: You've been listening to The Morning Briefing here on Intercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Have a great day, and be back 8 a.m. tomorrow for another fantastic show.
0: Helping military veterans stay connected.
3: We make it easy.
0: We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com.
2: Connecting Vets every day.
3: Online and all over social media.
2: Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets.
1: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network,